I can't get no satisfaction. The grammar leaves something to be desired, but the sentiment captured a generation back in 1965 when the Rolling Stones first sang those words. The words put, the, the, the words put into the expression, what was on the hearts and minds of many, and what's continued to be on the hearts and minds of many as we think about this world in which we live. Though I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, I can't get no satisfaction. Well, what Mick Jagger and Keith Richards put into that popular way of thinking has been expressed more eloquently and more elaborately by poets and philosophers, not only before their time, but since their time as well. Consider the way that William Graham Cole put it in his book, The Restless Quest of Modern Man. What is this plague, he writes, this germ which, like the tuberculosis bacterium, lurks within, waiting for the victim's strength to sink below a certain level so that it may strike? It's not a new organism. Its ravages were predicted by certain seers of the 19th century. Melville and Hawthorne, Nietzsche and Marx, Dostoevsky and Kafka all saw it coming in one form or another. Its actual appearances have been described in some detail by contemporary poets and painters, playwrights and novelists. They were and are, there were and are a few theologians at work on the bacterium. But for the most part, the examination and analysis are taking place in the secular laboratories. The germ has a very simple name, meaninglessness. And the conditions under which it strikes are well known when one raises or is confronted by the ultimate questions about life, about the purpose and meaning of existence, and discovers that there are no answers. No answers, that is that can be believed. Life seems pointless and empty, rather cruel, and even a little mad. It's this question of meaning, this question of purpose, that the book of Ecclesiastes meets head on. In our ongoing study of this Old Testament book, we have been challenged to think about life in a fallen world. Life in a world that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And to consider what it means to find joy, purpose, meaning in such a world. I love Ecclesiastes because it does not sugarcoat the realities of this life in a fallen world. It doesn't mince words. The author of Ecclesiastes, who's most likely King Solomon, takes an honest look at all of the things that people do in order to make their lives work. And he concludes that if we look at things from a merely human point of view, the only objective conclusion that we can reasonably come to is that life is fleeting. Life is a vapor. Life is ultimately meaningless. And so he sounds the theme of his book in the opening words, in the very second verse of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Well, that's an appropriate judgment 
Perhaps the only appropriate judgment that can be made when life is evaluated from a purely horizontal point of view. That is, when life is considered under the sun. That's the phrase that Ecclesiastes uses repeatedly in order to signal us that the point of view being taken is life below the clouds. Life as we experience it. Life without any proper regard for God. This book is about real life. Real life in a fallen world. Now while it is true that life under the sun is all vanity, that does not mean that there is no hope for ever experiencing meaning in this life. Or that we will never experience joy or goodness in this life. The world is indeed fallen, but it is and it's true that it's not the way that it's supposed to be, but God, who created the world and rules over the world, is still good. And He gives us good gifts to enjoy when we recognize His gifts. When we accept them as His gifts, we can discover how to live a joy-filled life. Today, we're going to see how the author of Ecclesiastes makes that point to us as we continue on in our study taking up where we left off last time in the end of the first chapter. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes 1 beginning in verse 12 and go all the way through all of the verses in chapter 2. So our text is Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 through chapter 2 verse 26. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the chair in front of you, that's found on pages 553, 554. I encourage you to open up a copy of the scripture and follow along because we're simply going to talk about the things that are written for us here and try to understand them and apply them. So you follow along in your copy of God's word as I read from my copy of God's word. So hear what the scripture has to say to us beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked that cannot be made, what is crooked cannot be made straight? And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself 
gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all my hands had done, all my hands had done, and the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the, all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. In a broken and fallen world, real joy can be found in God's provision of drink, food, and work. Solomon was a very capable man. By the end of his life, his resume was long. It was filled with genuine accomplishments 
and with many recommendations, much acclaim. In the passage that we have just read, he describes how he set out to find meaning in the world. It's as if he set up a series of tests. And he says, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this, I'm going to examine this, and see where meaning can be found. First, he tests wisdom. Next, he tests pleasure. And then he compares wisdom to folly to see if there's any difference. And then he considers working hard and accumulating wealth and see if that will provide meaning. And finally, he comes in those last three verses that we read to his conclusion. And he says, in a fallen world, real joy, and real meaning can be found. But they can only be found in God's provision of food, drink, and work. Let's begin with Solomon to follow him in his reasoning, in his exploration, looking for meaning, looking for joy. First, back in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. He teaches us here by considering wisdom that living by wisdom is ultimately meaningless. Verse 13, he says, he applied his heart to this course of thinking, to think about life, to think about all that is done under the sun. Think about life without regard to God. And he concludes in verse 14, it's all vanity and a striving after wind. It's like chasing the wind. Have you ever tried to chase the wind, children? Have you ever seen leaves or grass blowing in the wind and you try to go out and grab the wind? You come up empty-handed. It's impossible. It's something that's unattainable. Solomon says that's true of trying to live by wisdom as well. In verse 13, he says this is unhappy business. Unhappy business that God has called us to in this fallen world. And then... He confirms his conclusion about this in verse 15 with a proverb. Look at this proverb. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, you can't fix this. No matter what we do, this can't ever be made right by my own efforts under the sun. The world is so flawed, so far from what it should be. Fundamentally, you and I cannot make it right. What is ultimately needed is something that we cannot supply. We can make advances in tracking weather systems. But we can't stop tornadoes. We can't stop hurricanes. We can't keep earthquakes from opening up. We can make great advances medically, but we can't stop people from getting sick. We can't stop the body from deteriorating. We can't stop death the world because of sin is crooked you and I can't straighten it out it's broken we can't fix it this is an important point particularly at this time in our own nation's history with the presidential election just a few days away the candidates and their campaigns want us to believe that if only the right person is elected president, then all will be well. If only their candidate, if only this one gets in the position of president or congressman or senate or whatever it is, then everything will be good again. Then our young people will be well educated, all with college degrees, no debt, not having to pay for it. 
then racial tensions will immediately be healed. And there will be no more animosity over ethnicity. Terrorism will become a thing of the past because we're going to fix it if we get our guy or our woman in that office. Well, this is the way politicians solicit votes. They do it by creating utopian visions of what life will be like if only. And Ecclesiastes exposes every last attempt at that to be a lie. What is crooked cannot be made straight. This world has fallen and it will not become unfallen no matter who sits upon the chairs of the Supreme Court. No matter who is president. Human ingenuity and effort cannot fundamentally fix what is wrong. To think otherwise is vanity. It's striving after the wind. In addition to employing his wisdom to think about all of life, the preacher goes on to think about wisdom itself as he describes in verses 16, 17, and 18. He compares wisdom to folly. And he thinks about it knowing that he's doing so as a very wise man. Now, this is not bragging on Solomon's part. If you read something of his history, particularly in 1 Kings chapters 3, 4, and 5, you will see that God made him, then God called him the wisest man on all the earth. And so he thinks about the difference between wisdom and madness and folly in verse 17. And what does he conclude? It's all striving after wind. To try to make these kind of distinctions. He confirms it again with a proverb in verse 18. Listen to this. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now he's not saying that wisdom and foolishness are equal. That there's no value in wisdom. That wisdom is in no way better than folly. His point is that wisdom alone does not bring about a meaningful life any more than foolishness can bring about a meaningful life. The more a person knows, the wiser he is, the more readily he sees through the charades that this world presents. The more clearly he sees life as it really is in this fallen world. And that clarity, that ability to assess things as they really are, increases vexation and sorrow. It increases frustration. It causes the wise man to recognize what others celebrate, what others are putting all of their hopes in. In the end, is vanity. From considering what it means then to live by wisdom, the preacher then next turns to consider the value of pursuing pleasure. Is that where meaning is? Experience as much pleasure in as many ways as you possibly can. This we see in the second chapter in those first 11 verses. And he concludes this, that pursuing pleasure is likewise meaningless. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He resolved to indulge himself in any experience or possession that might make his life more pleasurable, more enjoyable, more meaningful. So in verse 2, he tries comedy. He considers laughter. And he said, 
It's mad. That's a good commentary on a lot of our entertainment today. We have to have laugh tracks to tell us when to laugh. And the wise man sees through that and he realizes this is insane. Things that would make him cheerful, he pursues. But laughter, he says, proved futile. Both thoughtful people and foolish people laugh. So in verse 3, he says, I'm going to try wine. I'm going to try intoxicants. Something that will give me a buzz. And that too does not satisfy. Verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, he says, I will try creativity. And so as a wise, skilled man, he builds houses, he builds vineyards, he builds gardens, he builds parks, he builds or plants and raises fruit trees, builds pools in order to water all of the forests that he is cultivating. Verse 8, he accumulates great wealth, silver, gold, the treasures of kings. He goes on in verse 7 and verse 8, he secured men and women to serve him. In verse 7 he says, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my own house. I had more servants than I could possibly ever need. Verse 8, in the middle of it he says, I got singers both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. He got men and women to do his bidding, to serve his every desire, to please him in song or in bed. And then in verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He says, I worked for it, I earn it, I deserve it, I'm going to go for it. What happened? He concludes in verse 11. What happened? Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. And a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. You know, many people, maybe most people, daydream about what they would do if they had a lot of money. If they had a lot of time. If they had energy and strength and resources at their disposal. Solomon didn't have to daydream. Solomon could do Whatever his heart's desire was to do. To pursue pleasure. Again, go back and read 1 Kings chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And you will see the abilities of Solomon. And you will see the accumulation of Solomon's wealth. 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 22 says this. Solomon's provisions for one day. This is for himself. Was 30 cores of fine flour. 60 cores of meal. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Talk about a beast feast. That's enough food to feed over 35,000 people. That was his daily allotment. He didn't eat all that. He couldn't eat all that. The point is, he had all that he needed and more. All that he could desire and more. He desired, he left nothing that he desired 
unattained. And he concludes, it's all like striving after the wind. At the end of all his pleasurable experiences, it's vanity. Well, after discovering the emptiness and of pursuing pleasure, he goes back to wisdom. He considers wisdom specifically to ask whether pursuing wisdom is better than pursuing folly. Is it better to seek to be wise or to seek to be foolish? This we see in verses 12 through 17 of this second chapter. In verse 12, he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. What he will say in this passage is that pursuing wisdom has some benefits, but they are very limited. So he sets out to study this question, and he does so knowing that he's the wisest man on earth. God said so. So he knows that those who pursue this same course of, of inquiry after him, they're not going to find anything different. So what he discovered in his day is relevant for our day as well. Wisdom is genuinely, though relatively, greater than folly. That's verses 13 and 14. He says, yes, there's value in being wise. It's the difference between having light and living in darkness. It's the difference between having eyes and being blind. And that is a significant difference. And he acknowledges it. Better to be wise than to be foolish. But the advantage of wisdom over folly does not last. So in verse 14, he says, acknowledging that both ultimately will die. Neither one will ultimately make life work. I perceived that the same event happens to them all. And then in verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that, that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. No matter how wise you are, you're going to die. Just like the person who is a complete fool. So what's the point? I mean, why try to be wise? Why give yourself to strive after wisdom if in the end you're no better off than the person who's just whittled his life away being a fool? As the preacher contemplates this, he lets us in on how this, this reality affected him emotionally. Look at verse 17. When I thought about this, he said, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Here Solomon's illustrating what he said in chapter 1 verse 18. In that verse, he says that in much wisdom is vexation he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And he says, I've been the wisest guy on earth. I've learned more, better understanding. I hate my life. What are we learning here? We learn that when you try to live without God, you try to live without regard to God, you just let your vision be horizontal under the heavens, under the clouds. You can get all the PhDs you want. You can learn everything there is to learn. 
Listen to the testimony of the wisest man who pursued wisdom. At the end of it, when I thought, I'm going to die just like the fool is going to die. I hated my life. I hated what was done under the sun. It's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. I wonder if you are here trying to make your life work without God, without proper regard to God, and you've figured out some way to trick yourself into thinking that you've found a pathway of joy, of meaning, while ignoring God. If so, if that's true of you, then my prayer has been and is right now that God would open your eyes and cause you to be honest. Be honest. You think you can live and make life work without God? You might be smart. You might be rich. You might have access to all kinds of things that bring you pleasure. But you're going to die. You're going to die like the person who has never experienced or had opportunities that you have had multitudes of. If you think about that and let that sink in, then you can understand, and I hope you will identify with the preacher in our text. Brothers and sisters, it's possible for us as well. Having trusted God, who's given up His Son for us, to come to Him through Jesus Christ, to then begin to live in certain areas of our lives without proper regard to Him. And we think, if we can only do this, if we can only attain this, then my life's going to work, then everything will be right. And if you fall into that trap, my hope and prayer is that God will help you to see it. That it will be, be exposed to you today. And you'll be able to turn away from that to pursue true meaning in the way that the God who created this world has designed it to be experienced. Well, after confronting the futility of pursuing wisdom without God, the preacher next turns to think about the value of hard work and of accumulating wealth. We see this in chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And he concludes basically that working hard to get wealthy is meaningless. Look at verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. And then in verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Why is that? Well, there's two main reasons that he cites here that led him to this kind of despondency when he thought about how hard he worked, how much he'd accumulated over his lifetime. The first is that he realized all your possessions will ultimately go to someone else when you die. Everything you prize, everything you collected. I mean, have you ever had the responsibility to clean out the house or a closet of someone who's died? Things they valued? You look at and you think, I don't see any purpose of this. This needs to be thrown away. Well, here the wise man's thinking about it. He's recognizing that my possessions will ultimately go to someone else when I die. You know, the oil magnate J.D. Rockefeller was considered to be one of the wealthiest men, the wealthiest man in modern history. When he died in 1937, the big question was, how much did he leave behind? You know the answer? 
All of it. All of it. Same for you. Same for me. Somebody is going to inherit every person's wealth. Everything you've worked for. And there's no guarantees that your beneficiary will use your inheritance wisely. You know, there are thousands of stories that illustrate the preacher's point here. When Howard Hughes died in 1976, it was estimated that his estate was well over $1.5 billion. And he didn't have any direct descendants. He didn't have any immediate relatives. And he didn't have a will. He'd made it very clear to people that knew him that one thing he did not want was for any of his distant relatives to come calling and to receive any of his inheritance that he was leaving behind. Well, it took over 30 years to settle Howard Hughes' accounts. And after the books were finally closed, there were 200 distant relatives that received at least a million dollars apiece. You're going to die. You don't know what's going to happen to all that you've worked so hard to attain. You know, in this vein, a, a friend, wise friend, once gave me a piece of advice that makes perfect sense in light of what we're reading here in Ecclesiastes. He said, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. <laughs> that makes good sense, doesn't it? Well, not only will your wealth go to someone else when you die, but Solomon contemplated another thing that caused him to see the accumulation of wealth, working hard as being a chasing after wind. It's this, working hard without proper regard to God inevitably diminishes your quality of life now. So not only are you going to leave things after you're gone to people that you don't know how they're going to use them, what they'll do with them, but right now, working in this world, no matter how hard you are work, no matter how industrious you are in your work, without regard to God, it's futile. He asks the question in verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And he gives the answer in verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. That pretty well sums up the life of a workaholic, doesn't it? Always working longer, always working harder, always wanting to put in one more hour. And then at night, thinking about the things still to be done that he will do tomorrow, that he didn't do today, that have to be done next week, so that even his sleep is robbed. So he lives life burned out, sleep deprived, unrested. The preacher says, this also is vanity. So the search for meaning in these four ways have failed. The preacher found no meaning in seeking to understand life by wisdom. No lasting value in pursuing pleasure. No advantage in being wise as opposed to being a fool. And no lasting benefit from gathering possessions. So given this, is there any hope of ever living a meaningful life in this fallen world? Are we just condemned, consigned to just go about struggling in this world 
seeing everything as vanity, everything as futile, everything as trying to grasp the wind. Well, the author gives us his conclusion that says, no, we're not condemned to live life that way. In the last three verses, verses 24, 25, and 26, he teaches us that there is possibility of living a meaningful life in this fallen world. You do so when you recognize and embrace God's grace. When you recognize and embrace God's grace. This life yields real joy when it is kept in proper perspective. So he says, almost in a way that you don't anticipate in verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. What's he saying? He's saying we need to learn to have real joy in the daily routines of life. Eating, drinking, working. We do this by refusing to demand more of this life than it is capable of delivering. We do this by getting utopian visions out of our mind. By facing up to the reality, the world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But God is still good. He is still working in this broken and fallen world. And when we recognize His work, we recognize His provisions, and we access His provisions in that, we can find real meaning, real joy. This world is not heaven. So it cannot satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. We were made for something better than this. And if you think that this can bring to you that for which you were ultimately made, Ecclesiastes says, you are grasping after the wind. What we are to do then is to enjoy the benefits that can be found in this fallen world, but not to expect this fallen world to provide for us what we ultimately need. We need to stop and examine what life is and recognize that this life is a gift of God. This life comes to us from God. The privileges and opportunities we have every day are from God. Look at verse 24 in the middle of it. He says, this, that is, finding joy in eating and drinking and work, this also I saw is from the hand of God. Verse 25, for apart from Him, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? God is the one who gives us both the ability and the opportunity to work. And if you think that your job is somehow supposed to give you complete fulfillment, to cause you to find that deepest sense of meaning that you long for, you're created for, you're missing it. It cannot happen. But the job that God gives you, the ability He gives you to pursue it, to engage in it, we should recognize comes from His kind hand. He's the one who not only gives you food, gives you drink, but He gives you appetite and health to enjoy. Do you ever stop and think when you sit down to a meal that God has been good to you to give you this food? There are a lot of people in the world don't have enough food. You've got plenty of food. But not only do you have food, 
You have an appetite. You have the ability to enjoy the food. And there are people who have plenty of food. No appetite. They're sick. If you have food and the ability to enjoy food, that's from God. And you ought to enjoy that. You ought to acknowledge that and receive that as His kindness to you. What we ought to do is, like the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6, to work as to the Lord, not expecting our jobs, our income, or possessions to meet our deepest desires of our hearts, but remembering that our job and ability to work, our food and ability to taste, all come from God. And not overlook the fact that these are real blessings from His hand as we make our way through this fallen world. This is a wonderful admonition to us as believers to think rightly about creation. About this world that the Lord has given to us. Yes, it is fallen. It will never be a utopia through our efforts. But it is from God. And He is ruling and overruling in it. And therefore, it should be enjoyed as a good gift from Him. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy as he's instructing Timothy how to help Christians who have attained wealth in this world. In 1 Timothy 6.17 he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now don't think that your wealth is going to make it a utopia. Don't think your money is going to do for you what you need to have done. But he goes on to say, set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Brothers and sisters, this world, with all of its limitations, was provided for us by our loving Heavenly Father for us to enjoy. So don't idolize the gifts that He gives to us. Don't turn them into something demanding that they do for you what they can never do. But don't neglect them. Don't treat them as insignificant and unworthy of your using them for enjoyment. They're good gifts. Because they come from your Heavenly Father. So enjoy. The right relationship that we need with God results in being able to experience these real blessings from God. Verse 26, here he wraps it all up. He says, for the one who pleases him, God has given, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God this also, for the sinner, is vanity and striving after wind. God gives his people wisdom, knowledge, and joy now. He gives us good gifts now. He will give us the whole earth in the future. There's going to be new heavens, new earth, and everyone who knows God through faith in Jesus Christ is going to possess that new heavens and new earth. The meek, Jesus said, will inherit the earth, that day is coming. You see what the preacher's telling us in this passage? Life in this fallen world will only be futile and meaningless apart from a right relationship to the God who created it. Life under the sun, without knowing God, without pleasing God, is vanity. That's true no matter how hard you work. It's true no matter how smart you are. It's true no matter how much stuff you accumulate in your lifetime. So what does it mean? To please Him. To the one who pleases Him, He says. God gives all of these things. What does it mean to please God? 
Well, in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. To please God, then, is to trust him. It's to come to him by faith. And what is the way that God has provided for people like you and me to come to him by faith? It's not simply believing that he exists. The devils do that. It's believing in the provision that he has made for people who he created in his image to represent him in the world, but who have fallen away from him. It's faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's faith in the one who came from heaven in order to do for us what we must have done in order to reconcile us to God. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're going to be pleasing to God, it will only be as you're trusting in His Son. It's only as you bow to Jesus Christ as Lord. If you're not trusting Christ, friend, you will not be able to enjoy the good things in this world the way they're designed to be enjoyed outside of Christ. You won't be able to do it. Come to Him. Believe Him. Acknowledge the truth about your life, trying to live without your Creator. And then look to the provision of your Creator that He's given to you in Jesus Christ. You can attain some fleeting successes. You can experience some things that bring pleasure. That happens. It's not being denied. But when you stop and think honestly, what's the point of it all? Where's this going to end? If you're honest, you'll see what the preacher in Ecclesiastes saw. If this is it, it's all futile. It's all meaningless. It's like trying to grab the wind. But meaning is found. It's available. It's provided in what God has done for people like you and me in giving up His Son. Come to know this God. Come to please this God. By trusting in His Son, receiving Christ, and then in Christ, enjoy the good gifts of this fallen world without turning those gifts into idols, demanding that they do for you what they were never designed to do that they cannot do. As I was reading through this passage this week and studying and preparing for this morning, I was reminded of the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount that Jared read earlier in our service. Because I see an echo in what Jesus says to the book of Ecclesiastes in the passage we've looked at. Jesus is telling his disciples how to live meaningful lives in this broken world. What it means to be citizens of heaven while you're living on earth. Listen again to what he says. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food? the body more than clothing it's not about the stuff you accumulate not about the stuff that you deal with day in and day out he says look at the birds of the air they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them they're not workaholics they do what they need to do but God's the one who takes care of them and Jesus said are you not more valuable than they and then he says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? What doesn't exist can't be counted. What is crooked can't be made straight by 
any of our efforts. And why are you anxious about clothing? Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And he says, I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. Not even the preacher, not even the man that had everything was taken care of like those flowers in the field. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Unbelievers, people who live under the sun, who don't know God. And all these things your heavenly Father knows that you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Live to please God. Seek first his kingdom by bowing to the king that he is enthroned in heaven, Jesus Christ. Seek his righteousness, the way of Jesus Christ. And as you do this, then God will provide for you. God will give you that which you need. He'll set you free to enjoy the good things that do come to us in this broken world without turning those things into something that you demand will make your life work. So are you trusting Christ? Are you seeking Him first? Is He the priority in your life? If not, friend, Turn today from the way you've been living to this Christ who offers himself to you, who's willing to bring you to the God who created you, who's willing to give you life that is abundant and full of joy and hope now and forever. Come to him. Just trust him. Christian, have you deviated from this path of seeking Jesus Christ as king and his righteousness above everything else? If so, then hear the word of God as he calls you back. He exposes to you the folly of thinking that you can figure out life and make it work just right apart from seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first. And ask God to help you. Ask him to work in you right now to turn you so that you can live this way and you can experience genuine joy, genuine hope, genuine meaning in a world that is broken and fallen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for not leaving us in the world without clear testimony to yourself. We pray you would help us to understand your word, to see the things that you taught Solomon, to apply them to our own lives. God, forgive us for thinking that wisdom, or possessions, our pleasures will somehow ultimately satisfy us. Help us to look to you, to live our lives to please you, to trust and hope in your provision of Jesus Christ so that we can be set free. Free from utopian visions that are futile and free to enjoy the good things you give us in this fallen world. I ask for your spirit to seal to our hearts the truths from your word, in Jesus' name.